The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Thank you for this season to give thanks and this season to give. as reflected in your gift to us. We praise you and give you thanks. And your gift is the reason that we've gathered here today, Father, for what you've done in our hearts to draw us to yourself, for other reasons that we've come, whatever it is. The providential work that you've performed is to gather us all together in this place today. And for that, we're grateful. And in all our sin, hearts that aren't right, our prejudice, our racism, our judgmentalism, our name-calling, our own rebellion. We pray today, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you break down the barriers that keep us from truly worshiping you this day in spirit and in truth. Do your miraculous work in our hearts today. Change us into the people that you've called us to be, the people that you've created us to be for your glory. We thank you, Father, for our leaders. We want to pray for them today. We pray for President Obama and his family and ask that you care for them this day, for our vice president and his family, for our governor and her family, our mayor and his family. So many others, Father, that you've placed in authority above us who in many ways have the the weight of society on their shoulders. And we pray that you would give them godly wisdom in the decisions they make and draw them closer to yourself. Thank you for their service. And, Father, we... Um, pray for your church the leadership here we pray that uh, you would bless your church you bless those that teach and those that serve the variety of areas and the numbers of people needed for this place to function Lord you've given people gifts so that they might serve and bless this congregation. We pray your blessings on their lives. We pray for your encouragement in their lives as well. And that we corporately contribute to this body of believers being a lighthouse in this community. Lord, may we we make a difference in this community. 
Help us not to be so inward looking that we forget that there's a wide world out there that need gospel light. So do your work in us, Lord, so that when we go from this place, we might be the people you've called us to be. And thank you for your word. It's it's powerful. The truths in this word are timeless. And it's changed many of our lives. And for that, we're very grateful that you have, you have spoken. You've given us your word. And we pray that even today, you might speak through our pastor. The word that you've given him to change our hearts, empower us to be the men and women of God you've called us to be. We worship you today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning we'll look at verses 18 through 22 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It's the word of the Lord. Well, I trust that you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving this past week. Am I right? I am right. We're all still on a bit of a turkey hangover, I imagine, this morning. Um, They tell me turkey puts you to sleep. Is that true? I'm not sure if it's as good of a, of a sleep aid as a sermon, but the two together this morning might work wonders for some of you. I don't know. But I love Thanksgiving. It's one of my favorite holidays. It's an opportunity to pause from just the craziness of life, and I trust that your life is as crazy as mine, and running into a lot of different directions, juggling a lot of different balls at the same time, and just the, the opportunity to stop and to reflect on the goodness of God in our lives, the the many things that we have to be grateful for, to be, to be thankful for, is a, is a good thing for me. I, I tend to be busy, and the holiday forces me to stop and to, and to reflect and to be thankful, intentionally grateful for the many ways in which God has blessed me. And I, I know that He's blessed you in many ways, and you, uh, like I, have many things to be, to be grateful for. We really, if you look on the big scope of the world scene, uh, you and I live pretty charmed lives, don't we? I mean, if you pay much attention to what goes on out there in the world, um, we, we live charmed lives. We live, we live, for the most part, pretty easy lives compared to most of the world. 
You see what goes on out there in most of the world. People are facing all sorts of problems. There are problems of of epic proportions all throughout the world in which we live. And and for whatever reason, we, we are shielded from most of them. We are shielded from most of them. There are all sorts of troubles and problems in the world. There, there's political problems in the world. There's racial problems in the world. Some of those things touch our lives in, in sort of cursory sorts of ways. But in other places in the world, those are life-threatening problems. There's economic problems all throughout the world. There's poverty on, on massive scale in various parts of the world. There are people this morning who have no idea where their, <clears throat> where their next meal is going to come from. You and I sit here stuffed with turkey, and there are many who are starving. It's a real problem in the world. There's economic problems. There are problems of violence in the world. You can hardly watch the world news without hearing a report of some war or some devastation in some country, of people dying, being killed, bombs exploding, and various things happening, and violence and anger hatred just run amok in the world in which we live there are all sorts of problems in the world there are national problems there are people group problems there are all sorts of problems in the world and and when you when you kind of boil it down to the individual lives of people individual people have all sorts of problems too even people who live here isolated from much of the problems of the world still have problems there are personal problems that people deal with people have financial problems maybe you've come here this morning and 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 There are financial problems in your life, and that's a real pressing issue that's happening in your world. It's one of the kinds of problems we deal with, financial problems. There's relational problems. People people suffer from marital problems. Marital problems are a real issue in our world. They're a real issue among Christian people. Marriage isn't easy. You take two sinners, smash them together, put them in the house to live together. They give birth to little sinners that run around, and you have the makings for problems. Trust me. Trust me. I mean, there's problems that come from that, right? There are parenting problems that we deal with. Parenting problems. People deal with vocational problems. They lose a job. They don't know what they're going to do to to make money, to pay their bills, to support their families. People struggle with emotional problems. There's discouragement and there's de- depression on a wide scale amongst humanity, particularly within our culture. Some of the most prescribed drugs in our culture by doctors are antidepressants. People deal with emotional problems. There's all sorts of problems in the world, and there are all sorts of problems that kind of lay at the doorstep of individual people. But there is one problem that sits among all of those problems as the worst problem in the world. And Peter is going to address that problem in our text this morning. And that problem that's the worst problem in the world, that is the worst problem that any individual person ever faces, is the problem of human sin. Or to make it personal, it's the problem of our sin. It's the worst problem that any human being faces. It's the worst problem that any people group faces. It's the worst problem that any nation faces. And the sad irony, the sad reality of of our world is this, that people spend the vast majority of their time and energy and thoughts and anxieties being concerned with all of the other problems that they face and very, very little time giving any attention to the worst problem that we face. That was true in Peter's day as much as it was in our day, as much as it is in our day. 
It wasn't a problem so much for the people to whom Peter is writing because as we've looked at in these recent weeks, Peter is writing to believers who are suffering in a lot of ways. They have a lot of problems. They have a lot of problems. All of those kinds of categories of problems I just mentioned in some way or another, all of those are touching on these people's lives. They're, they're suffering for their faith. They're suffering. In some cases, they're losing their job. They're dealing with economic problems because of their faith. They're losing their possessions and their things because of their faith. They're struggling emotionally because of their faith, because of the persecution that's coming. They're, they're battling things like discouragement, depression maybe even. All of those problems are a part of the orbit of the lives of those to whom Peter is writing. And Peter has addressed those things in, in sort of a, a roundabout way. But here in this text, as he has on a couple of occasions already in this letter, he hones in on the worst problem that they face. And he does that for a reason. The whole point of this letter, if you'll recall, we've mentioned many times, is that Peter wants to encourage these suffering believers. He wants to build them up. He wants them to not give up on their faith. He wants them to not lose hope. So he writes to encourage them, to build them up, to strengthen them. He wants to say to them, listen, I know life is tough for you right now. I know you are suffering in many ways. But take heart. Take heart. What you're dealing with now is not all that there is. And this text that we look at this morning is a part of that. He he zeroes right in. He wades right through all the problems that they're facing. And he zeroes right in on the worst problem that they have in their lives. And he wants them to know and to be assured that no matter what kind of problems they're dealing with in their life at that moment, the worst problem that they have in their life, the worst problem that they've ever faced has been dealt with once and for all. Has been dealt with once and for all. And all the other problems one day are going to go away. But the results of the worst problem being dealt with have eternal consequences. He wants to give them an eternal or largely long-view perspective. Because when we're dealing with troubles in our life, we tend to have a very small perspective on what's going on in our life. Have you ever experienced that in your life? When you're dealing with economic problems or you're dealing with job problems or you're dealing with marital problems or you're dealing with any of those categories of problems, it can seem overwhelming, can't it? And all of a sudden, all of your your whole life and your whole world sort of zeroes in and it all is seen through the lens of that problem. It it consumes and it's hard to see beyond it because you wake up thinking about it and you go to bed thinking about it and you're dealing with it throughout the day. It's hard to see the big picture because the immediate problem is so consuming. And that was the deal with Peter's readers. And so he wants them to look beyond the immediate problems that they're dealing with. And he wants them to see the big picture that their ultimate problem, their worst problem, has been dealt with, their sin. And so in verse 18, he really gives us the gospel in a verse. That's why I've titled the message, The Gospel According to Peter, because Peter gives us the gospel in one verse. And then in verses 19 through 22, he explains that a bit, and he tells us really why that gospel matters to a suffering believer and how it applies to you and me. And that's the way we'll look at it this morning. But he does this by focusing in on the cross. He wants to get their eyes off of their own problems and get their eyes on Jesus hanging on the cross and what he did on the cross on their behalf. He died, he tells us, for Christ also suffered once 
for sins. Verse 18, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. He tells them right at the outset the reason for Christ's death. He wants them to remember why Jesus died. What was the reason? Christ died, he tells us for what? For sins. Christ died for sins. Now, let me just make a note here, a, a sort of an interpretive note on this whole text. This is a very challenging text to interpret, and there are multiple sorts of translations of some of these texts. I won't highlight all that because most of it will be boring as dirt for you, um, but I will highlight a couple of points of it. And one is here, uh, the New American Standard translates this first phrase, for Christ also died for sins once for all. The ESV translates it, for Christ also suffered once for sins. In either case, it's the death of Christ that is in view here. And he makes that clear at the end of the verse by speaking of him being put to death in the flesh. But the verse begins with with the word for. And that for always connects back to the verse before. In verse 17 it says, It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now we didn't talk about that last week because it makes pretty obvious sense, right? It's better to suffer for doing good things than it is to suffer for doing dumb things. Sometimes we suffer because we deserve it, because we do dumb things. We do evil things and we suffer for them. That's not what's in view here. He's talking about, in the whole context of chapter 3, suffering for, for doing what? For doing good things. That's, that's the people to whom he's writing. That's what's happening to them. They're, 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 good, they're godly people striving to honor Christ and they're suffering because of it. But the whole context here is unjust suffering and dealing with unjust suffering. And so that four connects us back to suffering in verse verse 17, suffering for doing good. And there's no better example of anyone who's ever suffered for doing good than whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he moves right into verse 18, pointing us to Christ as the perfect example. The the previous context, sometimes there's suffering in marriage, and so he writes to husbands and wives. Sometimes there's suffering in other sorts of relationships. In his day, slaves and masters, and so he speaks to that issue. There are all sorts of other kinds of suffering for, for doing good, but here he points us to Christ. Christ is the ultimate one who suffered unjustly for doing good. And he tells us at the very beginning that Christ died for a reason. His reason for dying was for sins, for sins. See, Christ died on a Roman cross for a reason. He he was crucified for a purpose. What happened on the cross was not just some sort of a cosmic accident. What happened on the cross was not some sort of a misunderstanding. It was not some sort of a good plan gone wrong. Jesus didn't die on the cross even simply as some sort of an example of unjust suffering. He died on the cross primarily for one purpose. He died for sins. That's why Jesus died. He died for sins. He had to die He had to die for sins. That was the purpose for which he came. When you and I look at the cross, we see the Son of God purposefully laying down his life for a reason. And that reason is sins. It's sins. And as we'll see in the text as it works its way through this morning, it's not his own sins. It's your sins. And it's my sin. What is the sin for which Christ had to die? What is sin? What is that? I mean, it's a word, it's a churchy word that we use, but but what is the meaning of the word sin? We need to understand the concept so we can understand why Christ had to die. The Bible tells us in the very beginning, the book of Genesis, that there is a God. And that that God is the creator and the owner of everything. That's the first thing that the Bible confronts any reader with. There is a God, 
And he made it all, and he owns it all. That's the beginning of the Bible. That's the beginning of God's Word. That's the beginning thing that God wants people to understand. To understand anything else that comes in the Bible, you need to understand and deal with the first reality, and that there is a God, and that that God owns everything because He created everything. Psalm 24, 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. Despite what many would want to tell us in our culture, the world did not simply evolve from an initial spark of an explosion somewhere randomly in ancient history. The Bible declares a very different reality. The world is here and everything in it because God made it and he owns it. Isaiah 44, verse 24, I am the Lord who has made all things. Psalm 50, verse 12, the world is mine, God says, and all that's in it is mine. At the end of the book, Revelation 4, verse 11, I mean, we saw in the very beginning the earth is the Lord's, and the very end, Revelation uh, chapter 4, verse 11, you know, we see this song being sung before the throne of God. You're worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God created. There's a God, and He created everything. And He owns everything. And beyond that, that God who did those things is a holy God, the Bible declares. First Peter, and Peter writes this in the very beginning, for it is written, speaking... From God's perspective, be holy, for I am what? Holy. Holy. Holy simply means perfect, pure, completely set apart, none like Him. When Isaiah saw a vision of heaven and the throne of God in Isaiah's prophecy, he writes in chapter 6, verse 3, that what the angels were singing around the throne of God, they were calling to one another, and their song was, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth, the whole earth, is full of His glory. Yeah, there is a God, and He made everything, and He owns everything, and He's perfect. He is perfectly holy. There is no flaw in Him. He is the model and the definition of perfection. No flaw whatsoever. The Word of God tells us that He requires, this God who made everything, who's holy, requires perfect obedience to His law. He has established a law. He's established right from wrong. He has established what is right. He has defined right, and He has defined wrong. And He isn't really up for debate on those definitions. And He's required that men obey His law and obey it perfectly. Matthew 5, verse 48. Matthew simply writes, from Jesus' perspective, Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Why would a holy God require perfect obedience? Because Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You simply cannot tolerate wrong. So you get the picture. There is a God who made everything and owns everything. He's a perfect God who requires perfect obedience. And that's where the problem comes in. Because the Bible goes on to tell us that God isn't the only one that exists, that He created man. And He created man in His image. Genesis 1, verse 27, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God creates mankind in His image. That when you look upon man, you would see in him something that would reflect His Creator. 
He created men to worship Him and to enjoy Him forever. But the sad story of human history is that those men who were created in His image to worship and enjoy Him forever have instead rebelled against Him. Have rebelled against Him. Each and every single one. Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, speaking of men, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. It's the sad story of human history. That God created men to enjoy Him and to worship Him forever, and instead mankind has chosen to rebel against Him, to reject Him, to set Himself up as His own God and to do as He pleases. And there's a price to be paid for that. And by the way, it's a rebellion that every single one of us shares in by choice. Romans 3, verse 10 and following, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us shares in that rebellion by our own choice. By our own choice. We've all broken God's law. Isaiah 53, verse 6, we all, like sheep, have what? We've all gone astray. We've all gone astray. Each one turned to his own way. And every one of us stands guilty before him. And that rebellion and that sin has separated us from our Creator. It's separated us. And it's made us debtors that owe a payment. And Romans 6.23 tells us that that payment that we owe, the wage for our sin, is death. It's death. Because God is holy and He's just, He has to punish sin. And that punishment is death. Both physical and eternal spiritual death. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. It's an Old Testament reality, too. And Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 simply says, The soul who sins shall what? Shall die. Shall die. Somebody has to die for sin. Either the sinner or a substitute. But somebody's going to die for sin. Because that's the eternal decree of an eternal God. That's the payment that's due. And the problem every human being finds himself in is this, that there's no amount of good intentions and there's no amount of good works that we can do that can solve that problem for us. We cannot simply save ourselves. We can never be good enough. We can never be righteous enough. Even our best days, our righteousness is like filthy rags, the Bible tells us. Listen, this is by far mankind's worst problem. This is by far any human being's worst problem. That we stand guilty before our Creator. That we are sinners who rebelled against our Creator and our sin has made God our enemy. Romans 5, verse 10, Paul writes, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of Christ. Listen, when you and I sinned, we became God's enemies. We became His enemies. And I want to tell you, the last thing any human being ever wants to be is an enemy of God. That is the worst position any human being could ever possibly be in, to be an enemy of the creator of this universe. You remember last week we talked about him and who he is and why we should fear him. We talked about him as being what? Do you remember? What's the word? 
I'm utter failure. Utter failure. Epic fail last week. Ah, Steve, the, oh, thank you. You bailed me out, Steve. Awesome. Do you remember us talking about God being awesome? Not like pizza awesome, but like earthquake awesome? It's coming back, right? It's coming back. Make me feel good. Just nod your head. The worst possible position any human being could ever be in, the worst problem any person could ever have, is to be the enemy of an awesome God. It's to stand in the crosshairs of the one who has created the universe. And that's where we stand. That's where every human being stands. And it's the worst problem we ever deal with. And there is no way we can work our way out of it. Our only hope is that somebody, somewhere, would do something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And that's what Peter celebrates here because he tells us somebody did. Christ died for sins. Why did Christ die? He died for sins. He died because he knew the worst problem any one of us could ever possibly have is, to, is that we stand as enemies before God, destined for eternal hell, eternal death, and totally helpless to do anything about it on our own. So Christ came and he died for sins. Christ died for sins. If the worst problem that any human being could ever have is to be an enemy of God because of our sin, then the best news any human being could ever hear is that Christ died for sins. And his death was utterly and completely sufficient. It says for us in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. How how often did Christ suffer for sins? Once. When Christ died on the cross, he paid the full and complete price. As we sang in the song a few minutes ago, the Father's wrath completely what? Satisfied. Thank you for playing that song. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. One sacrifice, once for all, Jesus died for sins. That once for all is a translation of the word hapax, which simply means having perpetual validity, not requiring repetition. The ESV writers or translators said, translate it once for all. The idea is something happened once and it has eternal consequences and it never has to be done again. When Jesus died, he paid the full and complete price for our sins altogether in his death completely. It's completely sufficient. Completely sufficient to pay for sins. Now the Jews to whom Peter was writing understood the idea of substitution for sin. How do we know they understood that? What did they do every Sabbath? They went to a temple and they carried along with them animals that were brought in order to what? To sacrifice. They understood the idea of substitution, something else dying in their place for their sins. The problem is they did it every week after week after week after week and in spite of the millions and millions of millions upon animals that, whose blood was shed on the altar, none of those sacrifices were ever completely sufficient to deal with the problem that they had, their worst problem. But when Jesus Christ came, He was the Lamb of God. He was the Lamb of God who was perfect and complete, and He died on the cross laying down His life paying sufficiently the price that all those sacrifices could never, even added together, pay. We see this in Hebrews all throughout. Just an example, Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered 
once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. Christ died once. He died once for his sin. And it was completely sufficient. How do we know it was completely sufficient? Besides, the text tells us that. When Christ died, do you remember what took place there in the temple? You remember there's this massive veil that hung from the, the floor to the ceiling of the temple that separated the holiest place, that separated the, where the presence of God symbolically dwelt from the people, and people had no access into that place. They had no access because that veil represented their sin that separated them from their God. And when Jesus died on that cross, that veil ripped right in half. A very visible reminder to anyone who was watching that the price paid was sufficient to remove the barrier and to bridge the gap. Christ died once for sins. It was completely sufficient. That's why we don't need to sacrifice any animals anymore. Because Christ's death is sufficient. In verse 18, he tells us something else about Christ's death. Not only was it sufficient, but it was a substitutionary death. That is to say that he died not in his own stead, but he died in our place. This is how he says it. Christ also suffered once for sins. Say this part with me. The righteous for the unrighteous. You see what happened? Jesus, when he died, he was the righteous one, but he died not for himself. He died for what kind of people? Rebels, rebels who stand as enemies before their God, unrighteous people. Christ died for them. How was he able to do that? Well, he was able to do that because he lived a perfect life. He had no sin of his own for which to give an account. And so the Bible tells us that what happened is when Jesus goes to the cross, our sin is imputed to him so that his righteousness can then be imputed to us. That is to say, all of the sins of all of his people are charged to his account, and he goes to the cross, lays down his life, and pays the price for their sin. Pays the death penalty that hung over our heads. He substituted himself for us. Peter's talked about this time and again. In chapter 1, verse 18, he speaks of Christ in verse 19 as a lamb without blemish or spot. In chapter 2, verses 22 and following, he tells us he committed no sin, neither was there any deceit found in his mouth. And here again, he reminds us that Christ, the lamb without blemish, the one who had no deceit in his mouth, who committed no sin, died as a righteous man in the place of unrighteous people. 2 Corinthians verse, verse 21, chapter 5. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus dies, he pays a, 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 the full and complete penalty, not for his own sin, but for ours, for yours, for any rebel who will look to him in faith and embrace him as Lord and Savior. He pays the full price. And he pays it on our behalf. A righteous one dying for unrighteous people. Why would he do that? Why would, why would Christ do that? He tells us in the end of the verse, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might what? That he might bring us to God. The ones who've run from God and rebelled against Him. The ones who are positioned as enemies who have absolutely no pathway back on their own. Christ dies in order to go get them and to bring them where? 
to bring them back to God. To bring them back to the Father. To restore what was lost in the fall. To reconcile the relationship that was broken. Paul writes of it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Through Christ, that was the purpose. Do you see that? Christ came and he died in order to bring us back to God. Because we had no way to get back on our own. The relationship was ruined and we ruined it and we had no way to get it made right. The only way for it to be made right is for Christ to get us and to bring us back on his account. And that's exactly what he does. There is no other way to be brought back to the Father except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Get that. Jesus said it, and either he's a liar or he's telling the truth. He said it this way. No one comes to the Father except how? Except by me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes there except I bring him back. That's the only way to get there. It's the only way. There's no other way to be reconciled to God. No good works can reconcile you to God. No religious uh, activity can make you reconcile to God. No good intentions can reconcile you to God. No religious system can reconcile you to God. The only way to be reconciled to God is through Jesus who brings you back to him by his sacrifice and his resurrection. It's the only way. It's the only way. Worst problem we've ever had is our... Sin separates us from God and positions us as His enemy. We are dead men walking with a death sentence over our heads. But the wonderful news is we can be brought back to God through Christ. We can be brought back. We can be reconciled. There's no better, better news. There's no better message for any human being to ever hear than the message that you can be reconciled to God. No matter what you've done, no matter how deep your sin, no matter how hard you've run the opposite way from Him, no matter what you've done, no matter how dark, no matter how long, you can be reconciled to God. But you can only be reconciled to Him through Christ, who by His death can bring you back and escort you right into the presence of Almighty God. It's the only way. Through His death, He brought us to God. If the worst, the worst problem any human being ever has had is that of being God's enemy, then the best news in the world is that Jesus has reconciled us to Him through His death and that we can be brought back. And what happens at the moment we place our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, in an instant, in an instant, our sin is washed away. Your blood has washed away my sins. And we go from being positionally enemies of God in His crosshairs to being not only friends but part of His family because we're brought back by Christ. That's good news, isn't it? You're sitting there like, that's bad news. You're staring at me. It's good news. That's great news, isn't it? That's the gospel. What you just heard is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter gives it to us in one verse. But all of that is not just academic. It has to become personal. And Peter talks about it because he wants it to be personal to those to whom he's writing and to those who would read of it many years down the road, like us. And so the rest of this text, verse 19 through 22 deals with making the gospel personal. 
And the way he does it, the way he goes about doing that is, is, is rather, it may seem to us, rather bizarre. There's something about thinking about Christ's death and what that accomplished. And, and thinking also about how to encourage suffering believers. There's something about thinking about those two things that causes Peter's mind to go back to a story from the Old Testament. He takes his mind back to the days of Noah. And he reflects upon the story of Noah, right? You know the story of Noah. Those of you who grew up in Sunday school probably saw a felt board ark somewhere, right? One of the most popular stories that children remember from Sunday school days. And it's obviously at the forefront of Peter's mind. And so there's something about Christ's death and suffering believers and those two things that causes him to think back to what happened in Noah's day. Something that was going on that God was doing through Christ in the cross that causes him to think about what God was doing in the days of Noah. And so his mind goes back to Noah. And he makes the connection from the story of Noah to what took place on the cross. Now, let me just note here. These verses are some of the most challenging to both translate and interpret in all of, this, all of Scripture. And if you read commentaries like I've done in the last uh, week, uh, you will find that if you look at commentaries on chapter 3, verses 18 through 22 of 1 Peter, 75% of the volume of those commentaries is given to trying to explain or interpret these verses. And if you read ten commentaries, you'll find ten different explanations. And so I tell you, don't waste your time unless you're just a glutton for punishment. Commentators are all over the board. There are two issues at stake. Number one, the grammar is very challenging to translate. And translation is not always easy, right, Alina? Sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not easy. The grammar in these verses is very, very difficult to translate into English. The other issue is there is an historical reference that we are separated from by many, many, many generations. A historical reference that would have been very fresh in the minds of Peter's readers that is very, very distant and unknown to us. And because of those two issues, these verses seem uh, very odd to us and very challenging. In fact, on verse 19, Martin Luther says this. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I don't know for a certainty just what Peter means. (laughs) And if you read ten other commentaries, that would be your conclusion probably too, right? It's challenging. It's challenging. We don't have the time this morning, nor would you have any interest really in all of the speculation and all of the various ways in which these things could be understood and interpreted. So I'm not going to bore you with all that. I'm going to give you the issues and I'm going to kind of tell you what I think Peter means by it and what the practical implication of it is, because I think that's the most interesting and practical and exciting part. Because after all, Peter was writing this this letter for a practical purpose, not as a theological tome. So there's something practical about this, and we need to mine that out. Here's where the mysterious stuff comes in, and we'll have to deal with it right here. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And here's, uh, here's where it starts to get uh, uh, sort of um, uh, challenging. Being put to death in the flesh, 
but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. All right, what's clear about this is that he's making the connection to Noah and Noah's day. That's clear, right? He takes us back to Noah and the ark. And whatever was going on, and there was something going on in the days of Noah and the ark, something about what God was doing in that story that relates to what he was doing on the cross, and in some way that should encourage believers, okay? That we know. What about all this other stuff? Here's the main issues where the debate lies. Main issues are this. What is meant by made alive in the spirit? Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What is meant by that, made alive in the Spirit? Is he, is he talking now about something that, takes, that took place after the resurrection? Or is he talking about something that took place between Christ's death and his resurrection? That's, that's a mystery. We, Peter doesn't make it specifically clear. Some commentators say he's talking about made alive in the Spirit, speaking of the resurrection. So whatever he says after that, this proclamation to spirits in prison was something that took place after the resurrection. Others say no. He's talking about what happened to Christ's spirit in between when his body was put in the grave and when he received the resurrection body at the resurrection. Those are the two issues there. What are the other issues? The other issue is who are the spirits in prison? What is Peter talking about when he says that he made a proclamation or he proclaimed to the spirits in prison? Three main ideas of who these could possibly be. Unbelievers who have died, some would say that, that he went and proclaimed some message to the spirits of unbelieving people who have died already. The problem with that is this, this word that's translated spirits here is, not ever, is never used for anyone that's human without specific qualification anywhere else in the Bible. It almost always refers to, to spirits, like evil spirits or demons. So it's probably unlikely, uh, at least grammatically, that we're talking about dead people here, the spirits of dead people. But that's what some would say, that there are unbelievers who've died. Others would say it's Old Testament believers specifically who have died. And what I think is most likely, there's a third op- uh, option, and that's that he's speaking of fallen angels, demons. So that's another issue. How do you sort that out? And then where is this prison that he talks about? These spirits that are in prison. What prison is he talking about? Is he talking about hell here? Some who would argue that he's talking about hell. And this, is the, this text then would be an argument that after Christ died, some would argue that he descended. There's a descent into hell. If you know well, one of the creeds, right? Which creed? Apostles' Creed, right? It speaks of a descent in hell. There's a big, there's a big argument about that theologically in the history of the creeds, right? So some would argue from this that here he's talking about that prison being hell, and the argument would be that Christ, sometime between his death and burial and before his resurrection, he descended to hell, and that's the prison that's described here. It could be, but the text doesn't say hell, and it doesn't use any of the other words that are used in the Bible to describe hell. It uses the word prison, which is nowhere else described as hell. And it also doesn't say he went down, it just says he went. The other option besides hell would be some other location in the spiritual realm, some unknown prison location in the spiritual realm. So that's the other problem in the text. What's his prison? And what did Jesus proclaim? That's the other final issue. What did he proclaim? What was the message that was proclaimed? To whoever the spirits are, wherever the prison is. Three options there. 
Some would argue that this is a case where Jesus was giving a second opportunity for repentance to people who have died before. Pretty much everybody who argues for universal salvation, that is to say that everyone ends up saved, argues that point. They say that Jesus died, and, and, and what Peter is talking about here is that he went to hell or prison or wherever that location is, and he preached a second opportunity for people to believe the gospel. And as, um, as a, uh, a, a Roman or not a Romanian Orthodox, a Greek Orthodox, I've got to get my right ethnicity here, Greek Orthodox um, a priest wrote, he emptied hell by preaching a second opportunity for salvation. Well, the rest of the New Testament definitely rules that one out in many cases. Peter himself rules that out in many ways. So that's not an option, but some would argue that. There's a second one, and the second one would be that he proclaimed a completion of the redemptive work. He went to these spirits in prison and proclaimed that the work is complete and redemption is done. And others would argue that he went and proclaimed a message of final condemnation on whoever these spirits in prison are. All of those are the issues that surround all the controversy related to interpreting this text. And again, I just summarized for you tons of pages of stuff that you don't need to read. What do I make of it? Well, my take is probably as good as Luther's, which means I really don't know what Peter means. But here's what I think. Here's what I think makes most sense to me. It seems to me that he's talking about a time between the death and burial of Jesus and before the resurrection when the spirit of Christ, his body died, his spirit still alive, went to preach to these spirits in prison. And I take that to mean fallen angels, fallen angels. And you say, well, what does that have to do with the days of Noah? Well, if you go back to Genesis 6, when it writes about the days of Noah, and you look at verses 1 through 4, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to men, then the sons of God, some would say that speaks of some sort of angelic being, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives, any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh, for his days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim, these are angelic beings, were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children, these were the mighty men of God of old, the men of renown. So you have this wacky passage that talks about these angelic beings somehow coming into daughters of men, of human women and bearing children and chaos that goes on there. So there are, at least in the story of Noah, a reference to angelic beings who are fallen, who are doing evil things. And in Jude, verses 6 and 7, there's only one chapter in Jude, he says this, And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So he at least speaks in Jude of angels that have fallen and are held in chains in darkness of gloom until the judgment day when their final judgment will be pronounced and they'll be thrown into the eternal pit. So it makes the most sense to me that that's who Peter is talking about, that he's saying that Jesus in some sense spiritually in his spirit went and proclaimed, I think, their final condemnation. And I think it was likely not hell, but maybe it was. I don't know. But none of that really has any practical application for you and me. Verses 21 through 22 does, and that's where we'll land this, we'll land this airplane here. Because it's also a little confusing. Listen to verses 21 through 22. Baptism, he says, 
which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, that's also challenging. Because on the surface reading, it seems to talk about baptism being able to save us. And there are those who would argue for something called baptismal regeneration, who would say that you cannot be a Christian unless you're baptized, that you're not a Christian until you're baptized. That baptism has a salvific effect. It saves you. And they would argue that that's the interpretation of this text. But Peter clearly rules that out right at the very beginning. He does speak of baptism, and somehow baptism corresponds to what was going on in Noah's day. We'll talk about that in a moment. And he says that it saves you, but he quickly says, not as the removal of dirt from the body. Why does he say that? Well, he says that because he wants us to understand, I'm not talking about your bodies. I'm not talking about something physical. I'm not talking about a physical reality when I mention baptism here. I'm talking about the spiritual reality which baptism corresponds to. Do you see that? Peter makes it clear. It's not baptism of the body I'm talking about. It's not the washing of dirt from your body. It's not the physical. It's, it's the spiritual reality of baptism that I'm concerned with here. And he defines that as an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's the spiritual reality. An appeal of God, appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. He's talking about the spiritual reality that underlies baptism. What is that spiritual reality? Well, the way Peter words it is a little odd. An appeal to God for a good conscience. But if we break it down, it makes sense. What is an appeal to God for a good conscience? That is how a person is saved. A person looks themselves in the mirror and they realize, I'm a sinner who is the enemy of God and the worst problem I've ever had in my life is that right this minute I'm a rebel against my Creator and He's going to destroy me one day. And I can do absolutely nothing uh, about that. And the only hope that I have is to cry out to God, to appeal to God, realizing that my conscience is burned because of my sin. And my only hope is to cry out to God and that through the resurrection of Jesus, He would do something for me that I cannot do for myself. Save my soul. That's what He's talking about. He's talking about the spiritual reality of crying out to God with a repentant heart. That God would apply what Christ had accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection to our lives so that we might be saved. So how is it baptism saves us? Baptism saves us not in the physical act, but in the spiritual reality which corresponds to the physical act. When a person is baptized, there's a sense in which It pictures us being immersed into Christ. Coming into union with Christ. That's something that baptism pictures. It pictures us being baptized, in fact, into Christ. It's said that way in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Do you understand that there's a sense in which what baptism pictures is that you and I, when we came to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior... We were united to Him, and we died with Him. That's what baptism pictures. When a person stands in the baptismal waters, and Pastor Frank or I, we dunk them under the water, the image there is that person is united to Christ, and united to Christ, they are going with Him to His death. 
And the water symbolizes the the watery judgment of God. Death, eternal death and burial. And so when a person stands there, they're saying, I am united to Christ and I have died in Him. I have died a death with Him so that I might live through His resurrection. That is to say, I am united with Christ And I go into death with him, and the only way I come out of death is to come out of death with him. And the water symbolizes the judgment of God. Oh, now we're getting a connection to Noah. What was going on in Noah's day? Do you remember? The sinfulness of man was rampant, and God determines to destroy the earth with the exception of eight people, Peter reminds us. And how does he go about doing that? By the waters of judgment. Right? He floods the earth. And that water, that flooding water, is the judgment of God that is coming down on an earth filled with sin. And the only way that any human being, ate to be exact, could be saved from the judgment of God through that was how? Being in the ark. You see, God saved people by placing them in the ark, Noah and his family, placing them in the ark so that when the judgment came down on the earth, it did not apply to them. It wiped everybody else out, but they were carried safely through to the other side because they were in the ark. When you and I are baptized into Christ, when the judgment of God, the waters of judgment fall, it might destroy everybody else. But it didn't destroy Jesus. And because we're with Him, we're united to Him, baptized into Him, immersed into Christ, the judgment doesn't touch us. We come out the other side victorious because He came out victorious. Because we're baptized into Him. Just as the ark carried Noah and his family safely through the judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ, by His death and through His resurrection, can carry you through it too and see you through to the other side. The worst problem any human being has ever had is their sin that has alienated them from their God and their Creator. And the only hope any human being ever has is that they might cry out to God, appeal to God with a repented heart that He might cleanse their conscience by forgiving their sin through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on their behalf. And by placing their faith in Him and what He's done on their behalf, they can be baptized into Him, united with Him, so that His death becomes our death and His resurrection guarantees ours. And that's very encouraging to a suffering believer. Because it reminds him that everything in your life can be taken away. You might suffer horribly. Horribly. But at the end of the day, Christ came out victorious. And because you're united with him, so will you. So will you. Whatever life brings your way, you're guaranteed in the end to come out victorious through Christ. That's good news if you're a suffering believer. That's good news to anybody who's an enemy of God who stands with a death sentence on their head right now. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to come to terms with where you are and who you are and where you stand in relationship to your Creator. You can deny it all you want, but your conscience burns inside of you the guilt 
that you own before Him. And there's something inside of you because you're wired this way, created this way in the image of God to know that one day you're going to give an account to Him. Oh, we can suppress that in our minds. We can deny it in our conscience. But it doesn't change the reality from being the reality. The worst problem you have this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you haven't been immersed into Him, the worst problem you have is not an economic problem. It's not a marital problem. It's not a job problem. It's not a relational problem. It's certainly not a political problem. The worst problem you have is your sin because it's made you God's enemy. And the God who is awesome will destroy you one day if you don't place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that right now. Better way to wrap up a Thanksgiving weekend than to receive the ultimate gift salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, through His death and His resurrection. In this very second, your sin can be charged to His account and be marked paid in full. And you can be given new life. Is there any reason this morning why you would resist that offer? Is there any reason this morning why you would continue out the doors, continuing to face the worst problem you've ever faced, trying to do it on your own? It makes no sense. Why do that? Why run the risk? Let's pray together. We celebrate you, Lord Jesus. There's nothing we have as Christians this morning to be more grateful for, to have hearts overflowing with gratitude for, than for what you've done for us. You have solved the worst problem we'll ever face. You came and you died for our sins once and for all, You, the perfectly righteous one, died for unrighteous me. You, the one who is perfect and holy in every way, submitted yourself to suffering and pain and death for a sinner like me, for a rebel, that I might not have to face the wrath of an awesome God. You faced it for me. I'm so grateful for that, Lord. So, so grateful for what you've done for me. There are those here this morning who have never had that reality become the reality of their lives. Lord Jesus, I pray that by your Spirit, you would awaken them in these moments. Right now, that you would awaken their hearts to this reality. That they would not leave this room apart from knowing you being baptized into you spiritually. The gift is free, and it's offered to all who receive it by faith. For those of us who have received that gift and know you, fill our hearts this morning with eternal gratitude for the gospel. Gospel, the good news that you've done for us, what we can never do for ourselves. We give you thanks this morning and pray for these things in Jesus' name.